I think it was unwise. I think that in general, I had a tremendous curiosity, and and because I had such a curiosity about the human mind, I mean, it, it was it was my interest in the human mind that made me curious about psychotropic drugs. Mm. I mean, uh, I felt from reading so much Jung that the mind was a tremendous mystery, and I was very interested in his concept of the collective unconscious and, and you know the archetypes, and. Uh, I, again, these were essentially religious strivings that were appearing in me. Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from San Diego, California to your brain hole. We have walked across the planetary desert and our building says hippity hop on it, which is very weird, but that's what it says. So we've now found the building. Anyways, we're talking about Maybe. Out of the three of us, out of the three of us, that definitely would have been the one that appeared to me. <laughs> right. For me, it would um, be winery, but <laughs> that goes without saying, I think. Right. So uh, we are your personal dickheads, and uh, we're covering A Maze of Death, published in July 1970 um, by Doubleday Books. But first, let's do introductions. If you are new to the dickheads, uh Let's give you who we are. Anthony, tell the folks who you are. Hi, I'm Anthony Trevino. I am a writer and film critic who, and I got a, what am I doing? What am I doing now? You got a new book. What's what's going on in my life? That's right. I have a new book coming out called Hissers 3, co-written with the Ryan C. Thomas. And uh, yeah, we're closing out Ryan's Hissers trilogy. Yeah. So you can read all three Hissers. And then, uh, or you could just read the third one. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm David Agronoff. I'm author of Ring of the Splatterpunk Award nominated Ring of Fire and Goddamn Killing Machines from Clash Books. And uh, you should read that, I think, because I'm proud of it. And our third dickhead, Supreme, today. I'm Lang Horn J. Tweed. Larry is the form destroyer. (laughs) <laughs> he is our form destroyer I thought I was the mentufacturer I'm probably the form destroyer If we're being real <laughs> David you're the walker on earth Yeah I'm definitely not the walker on earth okay. Me either <laughs> Well uh, Hopefully you have read um, A Maze of Death and you're not using us For a cheat sheet But uh, but you can But you can. Yeah, you absolutely can. I do it with the Losers Club all the time. Yeah, the breakdown will definitely give you some idea of what the book is. (laughs) I did talk to an old friend the other day who is listening to our episodes about the books without having read them. So. Oh, really? Yeah, he's read like three or four PKD books and he's decided that he's going to listen to. He's okay, I guess, with being spoiled, he said. And yeah. And that he's going to decide after listening to our episodes if he wants to actually read them or not. Oh. Which I the, awesome. the only book I could recommend to your friend to read is the Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Of the ones we've read so far. Correct. Really. Well, wow. I'm just saying it's a it's practically a must read. Right. You're oh, saying that's what, the one. Yeah. Oh, I see. Must you're read. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Not the only one you should read. No. 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 Yeah, there's a lot of good ones, but that's a, yeah, that one's definitely a must. (laughs) But skip the cosmic puppets. (laughs) Um, And the crack in space. (laughs) Uh, I didn't hate crack in space as much as you did, but, you know. 
I actually, well, anyways, so um, <laughs> let's just move on to the PKD news. Um, there's really only two items, and one is, I'm pushing it, um, which the first thing is that there's a um, website called Insights that's some kind of theology magazine. Okay. And um, in, Insights uh, did an article on PKD and scripture. And um, so I thought that was interesting because it's just kind of a mainstream Christian website, as far as I can tell. Um, however, I thought the article also sort of sort of dovetails with our uh, with the book we're doing today. So, yeah, with the Gnostic stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, it absolutely does. But I, I kind of think it's a weak sauce article. Oh, but, really? um, but we'll put it in the show notes. And if people want to check but, it out, well, you said it's a Christian magazine. I think so. It's called Insights. Yeah, well, Weak Sauce is their middle name, so. Right. Well, um, but, you know, it's weird because if you're writing a book or writing an article about PKD and scripture and you don't mention the exegenus or Vallis. Exegesis, David. <laughs> exegesis, yes. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's kind of like they didn't even mention Vallis, so I thought it was a little weird. Right. Um but I mentioned it just because it like came up very high on the Google searches when you do PKD news. No, really. And um, <laughs> it was the top thing. And apparently a lot of people were reading it. So they must have people. Maybe it's maybe it'll be a tick in sales for PKD. Who knows? Sure. What's um, the other thing? The other thing is uh, Netflix released a movie from Alexander Aja. I think is how his name is pronounced. The guy who directed High Tension and the. Hills Have Eyes remake. Anyways, he did AJA. A AJA is a French director. Asia. Asia, I think. Alexander. The Steely Dan album is called Asia. Yeah. Spelled like that. Well, if Steely Dan says it's that way, then who am I to argue? Um, Yeah, they went to Bard College. So, um, (laughs) Alexander. Bard College. Asia. Uh, directed this new movie on Netflix called Oxygen, which I have in my queue and have not watched yet. And Look. he, in every single interview he has done, and I've heard a couple of them, he has referenced PKD as being an influence. And in the exact, exact quote that he had on Rotten Tomatoes was, I would say Philip K. Dick in general, when he was asked about influence, there's not a real link between Oxygen and Philip K. Dick, but it was really in my mind as I was doing it for a strange reason. Hmm. So um, I'll let you know next time if it's a dick-like suggestion. If I don't talk about it, that means it sucked. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, that I, I don't know. I'm a fan of some of his movies. I, 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 you know, High Tension is a great first two thirds. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I like the whole thing. It's so whacked out. Yeah, I think High Tension is great. The twist doesn't totally work for me, uh, but his Hills Have Eyes remake is incredible. I would argue that I think it's better than the original Original. Wes Craven film. Not that the original Wes Craven film is bad. I just think that I I just think that remake is is really it's full throttle. It's on the gas pedal all the way through, and it's totally aware of what type of movie it is. And the family, you get so much more uh, depth into the into the Hill, hill people. But so we're here to talk today about um, a little ditty 
A little known remake called The Thing. <laughs> Take it away. Uh, a Maze of Death, um, which came out in July of 1970. David, what was happening in July of 1970? Well, you know, uh, Larry, July was actually, of 1970, was a pretty boring fucking month, I gotta say, <laughs> when I started looking for the things that happened in that month. But I will tell you that the dulcet tones of Casey Kasem debuted on America's Top 40 wow. in July of 1970. And the number one hit song... The first number one hit song on the first episode of Casey Kasem's uh, American Top 40 was um, They Long to Be Close to You by the Carpenters. Really? So, yes. Wow. So That's a great song. Well, that was the number one song in the country when um, A Maze of Death didn't hit the streets but got pulped. But we'll get to that in a little bit um, <laughs> because um, – just like me. Yes. <laughs> they want to be pulped copies of books that never ended up in the public. <laughs> it's a very interesting history that happened with A Maze of Death. Hmm. Um, but yeah, also in 19, July of 1970, Iraq ratified its constitution. That went well. Uh, and Hell of a country. Hell of a country. Yeah. And the Pittsburgh Pirates played their first home game at Three Rivers Stadium. Hmm. So... Uh, which was uh, home to one of the biggest victories in the history of the now dead to us San Diego Chargers. So, <laughs> um, but we're not going to get right. into that. Stop plugging your agenda on the podcast, David. <laughs> Anthony, every time sports comes up, <laughs> like my ire is raised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that. It's, That's how it's I that, feel. Uh, Simpsons when meme. You guys, Old man yells at cloud. Bring up Metallica. It's the same thing. I'm like, fucking guys talking about Metallica again. Uh, yeah. Anyways, um, so we're going to let's start with the writing and publication history of one A Maze of Death, which um, was written. It, now, there's contrary uh, information out there. So let's go through this a little bit. Most of the things that I see say that it was written sometime between July and September of 1968 with um, and we do know that um, and he's uh, William Serrell, who's, uh, you know, very active in a lot of the PKD uh, Facebook groups and has talked at length that he was staying with PKD when he was writing The Maze of Death. And he's in the forward to the book, and he contributed right. to a lot of the ideas that are there. And he, according to him, he says that it was written in October to December. But everything I see says July through September. So I don't know whose dates are more correct. However, he did write A Maze of Death after finishing edits on his collection, The Preserving Machine. And uh, we've talked about A Maze of Death before because he wrote it right before Friends from Frolics 8. Okay. So, um, and one of the impetuses of this novel and some of the ideas in it was when uh, William... So, Cyril and um, PKD had a conversation that basically started with the game, Let's Make Up a Religion. Okay. 
And so a lot of the Gnostic um, ideas come from that. Going for that L. Ron Hubbard thing? Yeah, I don't think they were ever as serious about, like, actually doing yeah. it. It was just, you know, coming up with these ideas and writing a novel about it. So, um, and you will not be shocked to learn that um, PKD had a really terrible title for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. And I know I mentioned this on our Simulation Nation interview, but um, I was listening to the there's two things that were just hilarious to me. The BBC had an episode of their great lives radio show about Philip K. Dick. And um, there was one point where the academic who was presenting the case for why Philip K. Dick had a great life um, <laughs> was um, he said at one point he was talking about flow my tears. The policeman said, and he said, Philip K. Dick was always great with titles. <laughs> <laughs> no no he was not right. as evidence again by what david's about to tell everyone oh yeah so the oh, original boy. title i'm braced the hour of the tench t dot e dot n dot c dot h dot hour <laughs> of the tench however um when uh, William said that this was written from October to uh, December, there's proof that it was written earlier because there's a letter dated to October 22nd to Don Wolheim, where he mentions um, a novel that he wrote called A Maze of Death. So he was already referring to it as A Maze of Death at that point. And he was also referring to it as having been written and done. And okay, so Don not double yeah. date doesn't want it. Do you want my sloppy seconds? Um, you know, like he's basically, you know, saying to, um, you know, Don Wolheim, like, Hey, if double day turns it down, do you want it? Um, and, uh, however, the, the title, uh, a maze of death wasn't absolutely decided upon until, ja until January of 1970, uh, because there was still a letter, um, in that January that was sent to SMLA to the Scott Meredith literary agency where he said, I too prefer maze of death, but I think the uh, should start it. IE the maze of death or possibly a maze of death on that. But they, there are several versions of it, but it wasn't until January, the year it was published when they, they finalized a maze of death. Not a maze, not a maze, like, yeah, I mean, and maze. Yeah. Good article. I guess. <laughs> you yeah. got to choose if you got to choose. Right. Um, a hard decision. You got to pick a or the. Yeah. The, the. Yeah. A now, maze of death. Now that kind of thing would be like a call in or, or an Internet poll so that they would answer that. So what should it be? A or the. And I will say that I think... Uh, and then they call it Bodie McBoatface. <laughs> right. Um, I do think a maze of death is better than the maze of death because it implies that there's only one maze of death. Yeah. And so I do think... And according to the novel, there could be any number of mazes of death. So. Yeah. Lots. Well, we I, I actually... Mm, it's not really even a maze of death. I'm going to be honest 
but I, I don't know if the title really works for me with the rest of the book, but we'll get into it. it. Yeah, it does have, I mean, you're right. It doesn't really work, but the, if you look at it as sort of a, a murder mystery, then it kind of works as a maze. Mm-hmm. But I think that's the only way you'd have it. It's a very right. narrow way of looking at it. Right. And um, according to the um, Scott Meredith Literary Agency, their records claim that they received um, their first draft of A Maze of Death on October 31st, 1968. So they got it on Halloween. Um, And so that's basically, you know, a little less than two years, just under two years between when they received it and when they published it. The first edition published by Doubleday is a very hard-to-come-by hardcover. And there's a reason why. Um, apparently, the first edition was accidentally pulped. Um, <laughs> as in, like, they thought that they got returned copies. The Doubleday thought they were getting returned copies and didn't even know that it was being published. Oops. And so only library and review copies were actually distributed. Oh, wow. Yeah, that makes it incredibly rare. Yes. And... Um, this probably was a big bummer for for Phil. Um, I don't know. I think a, that they must have done another printing or gotten some out, but the very, very, very first edition apparently is, is was mostly pulped. So if you find a library copy or a review copy, I'm sure they probably go for a lot. And I imagine um, now I think like the um, – sci-fi book club version of do androids dream of electric sheep is one of the most valuable but it seems to me like this this accident might make that um more valuable but um i don't know how that affected the sales but um eventually in 1976 uh mark hurst uh bought the um paperback reprint rights so it wasn't until six years later that um, Amaze of Death got a paperback. Um, and they acquired it with a couple different copies. And then eventually Daw did a few editions. And then, of course, Vintage um, and Mariner uh, have done editions um, since then. Um, an early manuscript of of a maze of death was donated to the popular culture library at Bowling Green State University in Northern Ohio. Never forget. Yeah. And um, so they, and this is the only proof of one like kind of major edit that Phil made, uh, which was a deletion of a, a kind of important paragraph in chapter one, which would have been page 17 of the double day edition. And it's where um, Ben Tallchief, upon learning that his prayer for a transfer has been answered by the manufacturer, he's musing about that book, the How I Rose from the Dead uh, in My Spare Time. And you and can so too. Can, and so can you. And so can you. And he cut out a, a paragraph. Do you want to um, read that, Anthony? Strange, he thought, that a communist theologian put it all down first before anyone else. God is not supernatural, the premise of the most important book ever written, and we have 40 God worlds to prove it. 
They have let us study them, and we have verified by the most scientific means our religious presumptions, or anyhow many of them, though admittedly there remain errors of detail. So you can see some of what survived there, and you can see the difference and how he cut it. So it was very, it was interesting that it was very important for him to cut the back half of this paragraph. Right. right to him, and um, maybe he didn't want to tip his hand on the God worlds thing, or I'm not sure, but yeah, but it was obviously well, you, important enough. This part might have threw him off, or I don't hmm. know. I think I'm not sure if that part made it in. It's um, let me look. Uh, uh, yeah, as the reason for cutting. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, it's not quite the same page in in my edition, so I'm not entirely certain where where it is. Let's see. Um, yeah, so um, in the book, it just says God is not supernatural. His existence was the first and most natural mode of being to form itself. And then that's just it. So, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's just a lot less ideas there. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what he was trying yeah, to that, Well, that makes sense because the God worlds are never really explained as well as they're mentioned in the future. So. No, because there's a lot of vague mentions, but there's no in-depth explorations of yeah. any of this stuff, yeah. if I'm being honest. So yeah. I just think maybe he thought he went too far in explaining the Gnostic God world type ideas that are there. So I think that's just what he wanted to cut. So we do have some we, – we, um, unusually, this book has a foreword, which is um, unusual for PKD. And mostly he's talking about like the idea and I didn't quote the whole thing, but Anthony, if you could read that, that uh, just brief part from that. It stems from an attempt by William Serrell and myself to develop an abstract logical system of religious thought based on the arbitrary postulate that God exists. Yeah. So which seems odd to me having read that and then getting through the, the entirety of the book and thinking, was this really about that? Or was it more about these people trying to escape their terrible... I guess that's a spoiler, huh? <laughs> well, no, where, I mean, I'll, I'll walk that one back. I'll walk it back. No, Go no, ahead, David. Spoil away where we're talking about the book. We assume everyone's read it when, when we do this, so... I, I understand their intent here, but I don't think the intent really came through with what how the book ends and what I took away from it. You know, so, like, if this whole book was created predicated on the idea that they were going to develop a religion and then write and then dick was going to kind of base the book on their fake religious ideas but the ideas are so vague that it just yeah. kind of just seemed like a novelty thing to do well a lot of times it, it, we've seen this with pkd is he has an idea that's a jumping point and he ends up writing a totally different book uh look at sure um then why is it in the foreword <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe he wrote the forward before he started writing the book. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so then just scrap it. Just scrap it. It's yeah. not necessary. Well, as it's, in, because uh, the reason I don't. Well, sorry. As in Kubik, which, you know, when he started writing it, was going to be death of the anti-watcher and was going to be all about the corporate spies and all that. And then it was just like, oh, I came up with a way better idea once I started getting into it. And I think right. That, so just scrap it and don't drop it in the forward because the book it now isn't really that related to 
those ideas outside of them being the initial like spark of inspiration for it. That's that's just my opinion. Right, the whole the whole power of prayer thing, like, is dropped almost immediately. Yeah, the, the first chapter is all about the power of prayer and and everything and what it can do for you and God is real and all that stuff. Then the rest of the book, they're like, oh, we're gonna have to figure this out, but you're not gonna do prayer. What's <laughs> so that doesn't work anymore. Rest of the book is who killed this lady with this loaf of bread. <laughs> Well, um, one of the funny – and this comes down to – and we talked about uh, this in the interview that we did on Thursday. But, um, you know, one of the things that kind of puts us at odds with some dickheads out there who, you know, there's a lot of people that are attracted to Dick because of the Gnostic ideas. And, and sure. they, they want to read way more into, like, those religious things. And, and we don't – we're not really into that. We're, we're, we came to this because we wanted to read a science fiction writer – presenting weird ideas and doing cool things well now i i personally i enjoy all the the gnostic stuff i love religious mythology but uh obviously i don't take it seriously yeah go anthony i'm not opposed to reading certain Jungian theories or kant or any of the other any of these other philosophers that dick does draw heavily from and i'm aware of that but it's not out of a lack of wanting to explore it it's just i just haven't and i haven't experienced it so my interpretation of it is definitely going to be different than somebody who has spent let's say their entire life looking at both these philosophers in their relation to dick or separately because they do kind of bleed together it's just it's it's kind of an asinine elitist way to approach it to be like you don't get it because you don't have any experience in the philosophy he's talking about you're just you sound like an elitist jerk yeah when when you take that stance and i don't think that people should not feel like they can't read dick's work if they don't have that education well if you fundamentally you should not have to have a, a very niche bit of knowledge for to enjoy the book no matter, no matter right. what the book. I agree. Unless that book is teaching you about that one thing. But <laughs> but if you're going to read science fiction or you're going to read, you know, any genre of fiction, it, to be required to have specific knowledge of some philosophy or something like that, I mean, it, I guess you can do that, but you're really, you're really shutting yourself off from a, a large part of the potential audience. So, you know. Having having it in there, but having it not be the central focus, I guess is fine for those for those people that want to be the pedant, you know, in the room and be like, oh, I I I know this character is the jester of Jungian uh, archetypes and blah, 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 and all that crap. But you know, for the regular people, that that's that just want to enjoy the book and, and get something out of it. They shouldn't have to have that knowledge. Right. And, and just me personally too, the thing is, is I think with this book is he had more, uh, it seems like he had more intention to do more of the Gnostic stuff than he actually did. He actually pulled off, you know, in the book. Right. Um, and that's not to say I didn't like it because I actually like where it goes. I, I like that it's like a cosmic horror Agatha Christie novel. Uh, yeah, I, I wanted more of the religious stuff personally. I wanted more of the specific religion and what it meant. I mean, we got the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, and the Devil. 
that's fine. We, we understand that. But beyond that, destroyer, beyond that, it didn't go any further, really, than that. So I wanted it to get more surreal and more strange with their interactions, and then it, it kind of walks itself back after mm-hmm. they... When they get to the building, I was thinking, oh, cool, finally, the, the book's really starting for me. And, but then it, it kind of walks it back after that, and then when the reveal comes later, it, it, it felt it, I felt kind of cheated. I like this quote where he talks about what Maze of Death is about. In Maze of Death, there are endless parallel realities arranged spatially. In the story, Ben Tall Chief Seth Morley and others are enticed to the planet Delmac O. Once there, they can find no reason for their existence, and as they muddle their way around, they die one by one, either by, either by murder, accident, or reasons unknown. At last, they wake to find themselves in a doomed spaceship, the computer of which has generated a series of virtual worlds to occupy the crew while they wait to die. But once awake, the crew debate the situation on virtual world Delmac O, and despite the violence, decide to return there. It's better than all the other worlds they've tried so far. Better than the dolphin world! Yeah, I don't see that as being true. I disagree. They even Uh, said that they stayed for months in the dolphin world, so... I thought this was a really good, succinct, like, there's, usually when PKD is explaining what his books are about, he doesn't necessarily do a very good job of succinctly saying what they are, and I, what I like about this quote is I think it's a really good, succinct, you know, um, explanation of, of the book from from PKD, which I thought it, was cool. It is, but he totally, like, drops the twist in, in his explanation, so <laughs> sorry, everybody who was waiting to hear Larry's breakdown. <laughs> well no they get to done been there. spoiled by pkd himself <laughs> spoiled uh, from beyond the grave <laughs> um but he was not so positive on this book he wasn't sure it like he was all of them he vacillated between thinking it was good and, and he wasn't he did mention uh maze of death at one point in the exegesis exegesis um and um which is interesting. I, um, but anyways, we have this other quote, um, Anthony, and that's the last PKD quote. Another one I'm not sure of is a maze of death. I get different reactions when I read different parts. There's a part in there where the same whole conversation is repeated twice. It's long and everybody's babbling away, but it's different. It's carefully rewoven so that the second time around, it's not the same. It has a different meaning. Um, yeah, and I thought that was kind of a cool like writing tidbit. But Larry, hmm. <coughs> what's up? Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> uh, story breakdown. Do 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 it is. A Baker oh, Street. Wow. A little okay. bit. Larry. <laughs> Are we going to get sued because I imitated it? No. Nope. Are we getting sued now? <laughs> we can hope. I wish I could whistle the X-Files theme better, too, in, in it, like, but I cannot. Larry. All right. So here we are in a, a maze of death uh, starring a bunch of people and a, a, a bunch of characters. Not a people, whole bunch of them. characters. Uh, but we start with Ben Tallchief, 
and he's sort of a down and out middle-aged guy sort of bored with his job his talents aren't being utilized properly he's floating around in the spaceship where he, he just basically puts on music tries not to get too drunk and uh that's basically his life he's got very little responsibility but he wants to do something with his life so he prays for a new job and prayers are real as as is god so prayers actually help and you you electric electronically or like through some kind of fiber optic cable there's a direct connection to god and you pray into the fiber optic cable and it goes to God and God listens or doesn't. That's the, the idea. And uh, God listens to his prayer and gives him a transfer to Delmac O. That's where we find out about that. Well, so that's that's quite a planet, Delmac O. <laughs> and then who, who wouldn't pray to get to Delmac O? Exactly. And then we do we go to Seth Morley and his wife. And they're in an argument in their kibbutz uh, about leaving because they're the head of their kibbutz. I, I don't know what. The and marmalade. And marmalade. <laughs> the, and marmalade, yeah. Which doesn't play anywhere else in the, in the book, which is too bad. It sounded like delicious marmalade. <laughs> yeah. But so Seth and Mary are getting off the planet. And Seth is sort of a, a lazy guy uh sort of set in his ways but uh but doesn't really want to do much it's sort of a skirting around the edge kind of dude uh but he's a marine biologist that doesn't have any water to do marine biology and so he carries rocks for a living he so that's why they're galactic popular then he would have been really busy yeah right but so they're he has nothing to do, so they, he tries to get this. He gets this new job on Delmac O, and heard of it, Delmac O. Remember it from the last chapter? Yeah, that's it. Uh, so I hear the marmalade is great. He gets a uh, this small craft that is a one-way travel craft, from planet to planet, and uh, he chooses the wrong one because it would have killed them. But uh, and his wife yells at him as wives do in PKD novels. And so this guy comes out of nowhere and says, hey, you got to pick a different ship. What are they called, those little ships? Nosers. That's a great name. You got to pick a different noser because that one's going to kill you. And, you know, Seth is like, "Uh, I guess, I guess. All right. But Nosers are pretty shitty spaceships. They only go one way. Thank you so much, Walker on Earth. And he's afraid of the walker on Earth for some reason. Uh, but uh, he's like, oh, I'll do what you say. And don't don't look too deeply into me because I'm kind of a, a, a bastard. And so the walker on Earth is like, chill, man. Uh, you know that cat you had a long time ago? The one that was kind of set in its ways, did its own thing, ended up killing and basically killing itself through its own... Uh, uh, activities that should it shouldn't have been doing, you know, its own bad behaviors. Yeah, you're like that uh, cat, and so I care about you. I care about the 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 dregs of the of the universe. But, but Seth, and this is my favorite 
characteristic of Seth. Seth is a, a, a pathological liar. So what he hears, or at least what he says to everyone else in the future, is that, hey, you know, dude was like, you, uh, I think you're great because you took care of a cat. Not not just compared him to the cat, but because he's so good with animals. So that's why the uh, walker on Earth uh, wanted to say a prayer for it. So anyway, I just wanted to get that out of the way. We get to the planet. There's a bunch of people there. There's uh, 12, 11 people there at the time, I, I believe. 10 or 11, something like that. Yeah, 10, I think. Anyway, and they're in this little... Uh, uh, village that's that they made this little ratty ass you know macgyvered village and uh and they're they're kind of weird people they're they all have their own classifications their own skills but they're not being utilized in any way at this at this moment and they most of them have been there for a couple of months and they still don't know why they're on Delmaco. They're just waiting for instructions. And so Tall Chief gets there and they're like, hey, Tall Chief, let's have let's talk about stuff. And they have these weird conversations. And then uh, Morley and his wife show up and they're like, hey, Morley, thanks. You're you're here now. We can we can go get our get our satellite working. And then they have more weird conversations, but they're directly the same conversations that they had with Tall Chief, which I thought was gnarly and awesome uh so they go they go into the room and they're like all right we're gonna get our instructions and boom the tape breaks in the satellite and they don't get their instructions and so they freak out a little they're like oh man i loved that scene by the way what the hell are we gonna do now we don't have any instructions we can't pray because we're too far away from the fiber optic cable uh to god so like we're stuck on this this weird planet that doesn't have anything on it except for this building and its baby buildings and and a big giant uh, slime monster and some some insects that have movie cameras in their hands which is how I viewed it I viewed it as a like flies with the camera over their shoulder Again, I loved that I loved the, <laughs> the bug scene we'll, yeah. we'll be talking about it later <laughs> And then the, the flies, the singing flies. As so they they're trying to come up with a plan, and uh, then there's some some issues with a sexy girl that wants to, has some issues with with actual sex, like she's uh, finding her identity through sexual behavior and blah blah blah. There's a lot of uh, psychoanalysis stuff going on. They do have. Uh, a, a psychiatrist or psychologist, a psychologist, but he's sort of a creep. No one likes him. So that's, that's great. So they're not going to figure out their emotional mental problems at all because they don't like the psychologist anyway. So Ben is like, all right, I'm just going to keep getting drunker and drunker because like now we don't know what we're doing. I'm going to grab my shit out of my, out of my, uh, noser go to my room. He goes to his room. He's having some thoughts and then he hears a noise. He turns around and there seems to be something weird there and pop, it shoots him. He dies. Great scene. The end of that scene when he dies, 
that just brilliant writing right there. And such a shock, he dies. Like this was, we thought our main character, or at least one of our main characters, boom, dead. I'm in. That's what it said to me. You know, it said, boom, are you dead, in? I'm in. Are you in? At that moment, I was in. And so uh, he dies. Everyone freaks out. The doctor's like, yeah, he died from, uh, from an allergic reaction. That's what it was, not being shot in the face. Uh, and everyone's like, really? Really? It was an allergic reaction. It's like a giant gun wound in his head. <laughs> like, yeah. I think he had an allergic reaction. <laughs> it was way too much histamine in there. Uh, so, so then that happens. And then we have the sexy moment with the, 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 the girl that everyone calls Susie Dumb, which is sort of demeaning and wrong. And uh, but she's sort of she's a well, she I mean, she's not making the best impression on people, but it's really not her fault. Uh, She has severe daddy issues. Uh, And so she tries to written that way. It's written that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Seth Morley, she tries to seduce Seth and he's not having it because it's just too weird. He's attracted to her, as most men are to this attractive woman. But he's like, no, I'm married. I can't. I can't be doing, doing this kind of thing. And then his wife storms in, and she's angry. And there's these little mini buildings that are they keep as pets that are wandering around the planet. So some people have these pets, and Susie's pet uh, pulls out a giant cannon and tries to murder Mary. And then it's like, oh man, we're getting out of here. Susie's like, ah, I don't like you anymore. And your wife is is not great either. And uh, so, oh, God. And so there's a series of events. Uh, all of a sudden, people start dropping like flies. Uh, Susie gets killed. Then, like, someone else disappears. There's a bunch of stuff that happens. But it's, it's all going a direction, like murder mystery direction, You know, people just keep disappearing and dying. And uh, they go to this, the building, which turns out to be this weird place that has a door that they're all afraid of, but they're all strangely attracted to. And it has a sign above it that reads differently to every person. And the landscape changes, and they don't understand why the landscape changes. And they don't understand why there's convenient uh, materials around at times. And this new guy comes along, Russell, and he's also a little weird. And they're like, are you, are you Jesus? Just tell us if you're Jesus. And he's like, no, dude, I'm not Jesus. And they're like, but you are, right? You are Jesus? And he's like, no, no. What, what are you talking about? And so uh, then they go back. The, somebody else dies. Somebody dies at the camp. There's like a sword. And then there's a gun. And then... They get back to the camp and like then this guy gets the gun and he's like, ha ha, shoots some woman in the head and then tries to shoot Morley, runs away. And then uh, but Morley gets shot in the process and then they introduce more guns. And then there's this great scene with the old woman, Roberta Rockingham, where this sort of an angelic character comes to rescue her from from the uh, from the encampment. And it's, it's a, a beautifully written. It's almost like a Stephen King uh, moment 
in there. It's uh, one of the good Stephen King moments. <laughs> uh, and then, so we continue on. Our 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 hero here, our guest, is uh, Seth Morley, and Seth Morley gets in t- kidnapped by a couple of jackbooted, uh, leather-clad guards of some sort. They put him in a plane. They take off. They try to land on the building. They land on the on the building. They're gonna take him inside, and all of a sudden he wakes up, kills those two dudes, and then he takes the the thing and he goes. He and he says, "Autopilot, take me away." And autopilot takes him away. He goes, finds out that it's London that he 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 goes to, and then he goes, "Oh my God, they did it! They really did it!" And then. And it's Earth the whole time. And so um, he uh, does all these other things. Like he tries to go back. He tries to find the people. He's talking to the ship. He blows up some some other things. He finally gets back to the, the camp. And he's like, who's still alive? We got to get out of here. So, And by the way, we're on Earth. And uh, then somebody else gets shot. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's all a dream. So they wake up after they have these weird experiences on the planet. Everybody dies, and boom, they all wake up in sort of aliens style, like the, the movie Aliens. Sort of psh, psh, all their their sleep chambers, you know, pop open. They pull the equipment off their head, and they're like, "Oh man, that was a good." Uh, well, okay, they don't say good. Oh, man, that was a really terrible planet we were on. Why are we so angry? Um, I have often said that to myself. Why am I so angry? <laughs> they're, they're on the ship, and, uh, and then, yeah, so they say, oh, man, that was a shitty experience. And everyone's like, well, we're going to do it again, except for our man Morley, who... Uh, even though they made up the religion the whole time, apparently it was real. All uh, you know, I was with you the whole time, or whatever that you know that footprints thing is. Uh, and so he ends up being a cactus. Everybody else goes back to Delmaco, and uh, then they're all eventually going to die because they're circling a dead planet. Boom, dead. That's it. I'm sorry, that one was hard. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, anywho, uh, Maze of Death. Um, one of the, you know, I again, I'm going to quote the Kim Stanley Robinson um, ideas. Uh-oh. That, Here we go, Kim Stanley Robinson again. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson put forward the theory that this was a transitional book for, for PKD, that you know, we're moving from eras. Mm. And part of the ways that it's um, moving eras is that um, – in Kim Stanley Robinson's view, what he's doing with this book is he's taking all of his traditional characters and killing them off. Yeah, Kim Stanley Robinson has this idea that what we're reading here is that PKD is writing a book about all of his cliche, his typical hero, his non-hero characters. And the spaceship is, in a sense, his mind. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> and that this is ejecting that in in a way that this book is ejecting, and we'll get in later. There's a, I'll we'll read the direct quote from Ken Stanley Robinson about this. Okay. 
Yeah. But but for now, just know that this is one. I'm, of the, I'm just let, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm skeptical. Okay. Well, th- that's like one of his theories in the fake reality that the characters end up in. You know, and sure. you know, it is what it is. So there's. <laughs> You know, there are a lot of the typical characters. Um, you know, the characters are not exactly winners. Um, no, they're, they're, in fact, they're losers, all of them. Yeah, they're specifically there because they're losers. Um, and that's one of the things that kind of makes them specifically, like, in this situation and typical for, for Dick's, ne- Dick's characters. Now... Whether you agree with the idea that this is all in Dick's, that this idea of the novel takes place in Dick's mind and, and that it has the similar ending to a particular Stephen King saga, of which I will not spoil the ending of, um, it, there's no doubt that this book is a private cosmos book, like Eye in the Sky, like Ubik. Yeah, the, nothing new about that. Yeah. Um, and... On their own, these books are impressive stories. I don't know if going to that well for a third time leaves me a little cold as far as, like, I kind of feel like you've done this, dude, kind of thing. Well, he's going to do it again, too. Here's the thing, is that we get these private Cosmo stories again and again, and that's fine, and I do think that he's doing it new and different and interesting ways. Ubik has new and interesting wrinkles to it, and this one does too, uh, to a certain degree. However, I just think I would be more impressed if it wasn't like kind of a well that he kind of goes back to. Like at the same, yeah. I, I, in fact, it, I don't, I don't like that part of the story. So, I mean, yeah. I wanted it to be just a direct murder mystery solve the the case you know find out what the building is like all that stuff i wanted it to be not as i guess just not as bizarre as it turned out to be and then and then he takes all this bizarre stuff and it just becomes so oh it was all a dream you know the the wizard of oz ending and i was like oh man i feel it was a cop-out well, there's ways to do that where you can make it earned, but um, and, and yeah, I, no, I'm, I, I mean the the Wizard of Oz ending works for a reason. Yeah, yeah. So um, here for me, right? And um, you know, there's often characters in the book constantly talk about, you know, there's several times. Is this an experiment? Are we being experimented on? And um, I understand it. Um, Larry, that you're saying that you kind of wish it wasn't, it was more simple, but I do like that the one difference here too, between this and the other private cosmos is, is that, that yes, that it is more of like kind of a horrific aspect and there is the murder mystery. It is kind of like a private cosmos, Agatha Christie novel mm-hmm. in a way. And, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, well, I mean, he still could have had the, the wake up at the end thing if it had been, a good, if there had been a, good I guess, setup. convincing, well, it had a good setup if it had a convincing uh, conclusion to the murder mystery part. Okay. And to well, all the other questions, but it just seems like a cop-out. Okay. Well, we'll get more to the ending. Um, the, the private cosmos thing, like, uh, the, the it, it is interesting. We'll come back to how that fake reality is revealed because I really do like how the reveal happens. Um, 
and I like the idea that, you know, that they're just kind of in this spaceship and this idea that they're just kind of circling is, is kind of sad and awful. Um, and, and I did appreciate that. Now, the prayers transfer thing. Um, yes, I kind of wish that they had not it, that he had not dropped it because I did think that that was kind of an interesting, funny idea. Kind of, oh, yeah. Kind of reminded me of Brazil that there is this um, uh, kind of bureaucracy and like this method of like you know, I imagined an office where they say, "Please resubmit the prayer." Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> our yeah, fiber optic cables were, you know. <laughs> disconnected at the moment please try again and i did kind of like that and um but what do you guys think about uh the building and um and and that whole aspect because i did really like the setup for the building i did think it was- I, I, I loved the setup for it the payoff was terrible i am in agreement with larry yeah but yeah that's it, it it you build up to this mystery of What's the building? What's the building? And then when we get to the building, as I said earlier, and it starts showing each of them individually different writings, I thought, yeah, here we go. I'm strapping in. This is going to get weird and surreal, and we're going to deep dive into some PKD psyche. And we just all say, you know what? Don't go to this building. I'm out of here. Don't you think, like, there's all this religious stuff in here. Like, To me, one of the ideas I was thinking of was – it it says something different to everyone. It just seems so much like it would be a doorway to hell of some sort, like that to their own building. private cosmological hell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it's promising heaven to each person, like what they want. But you know, once they go through that door, it's going to be hell. But then no one goes through the door. It's the promissory note not being honored. <laughs> like, don't give me a door that people are supposed to go through it and then no one goes through the door. Well, and in, in some senses, this reminds me of, um, and hear me out here, uh, Mulholland drive. <laughs> um, okay. because, uh, I think there's this idea that the spaceship is kind of like Bardo and like, they're kind of in this half spot. Like they're not quite dead. They're circling the planet and the, the computer tries to give them some version of, of what they like, you know, um, this person really likes Delmach O marmalade, so we're gonna, we're gonna have cases and cases of marmalade, all the marmalade you could ever want. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, Why it, create a private cosmos to go to on the ship that doesn't have all the cheese that where they're at working at before <laughs> has cheese, even <laughs> if their coffee pot doesn't work? Well, if you, if you take into account the religious aspects of it, a lot of a lot of religions believe that suffering is part of a, a part of redemption. So maybe that's, they've programmed that into the, the machine, like don't give us everything we want, make us earn it. But then it, it sort of went haywire. But there, sorry, go ahead, Larry. No, that's it. That's all. Well, I was going to say therein lies the conflict for me with this book because they're programming this group hallucination, alternate reality. It's essentially a VR simulation that yep. they all jack into they're programming it to escape the drudgery of their life on this ship that's going nowhere mm-hmm. to suffer. And yeah. when we're on the ship with them, there's, there's, they lack this kind of rooted desire for religion 
that is so prevalent in the first half of the book. So the world that they've created for themselves doesn't make any sense to me on a character level. Yeah, it's very it's very conflicting inside right. the inside its own narrative. Mm-hmm. So I, that go ahead, David. Yeah, so let's talk about the Gnosticism a little bit. So sure. so we have the idea of this mythology that kind of starts off at the beginning. This is obviously what him and William Cyril were were talking about at the beginning, and we have some interesting ideas about we have that whole God is not supernatural. Um. God is a part of like all forms, right? As is part of everything. So God is here. And then so then we have the form destroyer, which which obviously my PKD themed death metal band will be called Form Destroyer. But <laughs> um and by the way, the negative my force, negative force in the universe, whatever yeah. that may be, whatever religion you choose, that's sort of a, a general negative force decay of the universe. Right. Well, which is similar ideas to um, one of our favorite movies, uh, Prince of Darkness, with the god and anti-god. And, mm-hmm. you know, and even if that there's a scientific god in that story, then the anti-god must exist because it's that matter, antimatter, all that stuff. Exactly. So, there has to be an opposing force. Yes. So that's where the form destroyer comes from. And then and, and so I did think that there were some really interesting things with the form destroyer. I liked on his. Keep going. Um, the uh, page sixty nine of the Mariner edition is where we get some some Jung um, brought in, and it's the search for the great father archetype. That's what Jung would have said, and then the character actually says, "Do you know about Jung?" And then we get, and he lies again. <laughs> yeah, and totally. then we get some Jung explaining um, from uh, PKD. But yeah. I think you know a lot of the ideas of the form destroyer come from this whole from from those theories. And so we do, even though like the religious stuff is heavier in the beginning, we get a little bit of it further in. But I don't think it pays off the religious stuff quite yeah, well. I mean there's he keeps this book is a series of promises that he doesn't honor. That's what I feel like. I mean there's a lot in this book I really liked but the the promises not being honored it just bothers me. Like you set up in your forward this is going to be a book about a new religion that you made up and then you hardly do anything with it. Like there's some yeah you you combine some philosophies and some various religious aspects, but the, when he started, when the kids started talking about a God above the, the four aspects of God that they're talking about and the layers of gods, I mean, that, that would have been an interesting thing, a road to go down. Well, what I think I really going- thought this was going to be a book about different gods manipulating people into like basically their own game like these gods put these people into essentially the you know the titular ma- a maze of death mm-hmm. for their own you know for yeah. their own purposes and for their own enjoyment and and even the back copy kind of kind of sells you a different book mm-hmm. than the one we're getting yeah, right. i'm in total agreement with you larry well okay on page 89 though he does it does 
of the Mariner edition does talk about these ideas. And there is this concept in there that, and I think this is one of the things that just from listening to interviews with Bill Cyril and, and things like that, that I think they were trying to get at is that this idea that if we were meeting uh, creatures from other planets, like we, we probably would see them as, as quasi godlike. And then we get these God world ideas because and then it's this idea of like, well, to to a cat or a dog, we might come off seeming like these like great and superior beings because we provide food and we provide shelter and we do right. do all these things that. And so on page eighty nine, it's um, your problem is that a lot of people um, is that a lot of people it stems from having encountered non humanoid sentient species. Some of them, the ones we call gods on what we call God world, so much superior to us. For example, the role say that dogs or cats have to us. To a dog or a cat, a man seems like God. He can do God-like things, but the quasi-biological ultra-sentient life forms on God worlds, they're just as much products of the natural biological evolution as we are. So they're trying to put forward this idea that, that we f- we we perceive God's existing in this universe, but it's because we misunderstand and we don't. And that 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 that's a lot of it. And I do like those ideas, and I do think that that's cool things that are going on there. You know, um, as far as they're the trying story. to introduce the rationale behind behind gods, but I, I mean that's nothing new. So then the building opens, and then there's this globular slime creature, which apparently just Phil just really liked to have. He's like. You know, which, you know, in fairness, that's cool for him because he's, you know, not just picturing, you know, humanoids with bumpy foreheads, right? <laughs> you know, he's coming up with these aliens that are, but, and then, the, but, and then we have this reveal of the tench that, you know, once, once the building's open and, and we get this reveal, then um, we can ask it questions. And then it's hilarious because, Oh, this, there's this godlike being, but then we're going to ask a question and break its brain. <laughs> yeah. Right. Something and I nice like... about PKD is that not all his aliens are terribly anthropomorphic, which I find refreshing. Yeah. Also, the Tench is my favorite character in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, he could have been the title character. Um, and then um, I like this. Are you God? Did you make the universe? They reply in an affirmative. We would do the same thing. White men back in 16th and 17th centuries told the natives of North and South America exactly the same thing. So he's basically saying, like, well, I mean, if we ask them, are you God? And what else are they going to say? <laughs> no. Yeah. Sure. Sure, we're God. I really thought of Ghostbusters when I when I read that part. <laughs> I was like, you're right. Someone asked you if you're a God. You say yes. <laughs> um uh, so let's talk about um, we'll get to some of the really funny things, but let's talk about the reveals, the reality within the reality. So I'm, kind of the first like hint of this is on page 82 of the um, Mariner edition. We live in a world created and manufactured from the results of millions of men, most of them dead, virtually none of them known or given them credit. That's the first kind of thing that this idea of who made it is kind of where it starts, right? Mm-hmm. That it's a construct that came from Earth. Um, the first, like, signs is that, that they get this idea that they can figure out, that, well, hey, the building is Earth-made before they figure out that they're actually, right? you know, 
Right, when they, yeah, under the microscope. Right. And then, um, yeah, that whole idea of the who made it, then there's the reveal that there's the, the big question that kind of, that kills the Tench, which is on, they first start asking the Tench questions on page 129, which is pretty far into the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like that they're giving these ultimate questions, but it's the question on 182 that um, what is Perseus 9, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the one, the what is Perseus 9 is, you know, the ground starts smoking around the tench. And <laughs> Perseus like, 9, David. Perseus 9. Perseus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Perseus 9. And then, and then it's like the tench is like, does not compute. Um, which is kind of a Star Trek moment because, you know, there's always the scenes where Kirk, like, talks the computer to death. Right, yeah. And, Into a logic trap or something, you know. Right. And so, I don't know, like, what do you think about this reveal that just, like, knowing that they're that they're on a spaceship is just, just like, you know, kind of breaks the format? Um, what do you think about that reveal? I liked it, personally. I thought I I don't I don't get your question. Just that they're on they're on a ship. Well, just that 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 they asking the question of the tench breaks the tench and mm. and like kind of it, it. I thought it was an interesting way to do. That. Uh, no, I I think it it would have been a good moment if there was a lot uh, like a lot of other factors would have had to happen for that to be a really great moment. I mean, I I see where it wanted to go, what it wanted to be. But it really it was all so disjointed that I it it sort of fell flat for me. It seems like the Persis Nine question sending the attention to overdrive, like it it almost seems like they pre-programmed that question to basically eject them out of the simulation. Oh, right, like, a like it, it, yeah, because that's what happens is they ask it, it falls apart, and then you know. Morley dies and it's because they're all back out of the simulation mm-hmm. and it, it seems that's my only idea about why that happens and the Persis 9 being tattooed on all their arms seems kind of like if I'm remembering correctly kind of similar to the totems and in Inception where mm-hmm. that's the one thing that roots you back to where you're supposed to be right that that was just my interpretation oh, yeah. of it but I oh, that's, that's I, I think that the, those seem yeah. those seem so distinctly different from the first almost half more like 75 percent of the book that i i it just felt like had they spent more time building up to that in a better way it would have been a bigger payoff so i like it as an idea but i don't think the execution is there yeah that's i i didn't even consider the practicality of something like that because of everything else that's in the book that doesn't right support practicality you know it's it's all over the place, but it's all supposed to be this, I, I guess, uh, you know, fact-based religion, but but not, I don't know, the characters seem so lost. Like, to, to even consider that they would have the the wherewithal or the, the mental acuity to, to come up with something like that just doesn't seem possible. So mm-hmm. I didn't even consider that they would do something practical. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Planet of the Apes ending, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which happened uh, with the surprise. It's London on. Uh, Actually, that 
that whole thing took me out of the book. Oh, really? Same. It just... when, when Morley leaves, when he gets on that ship and leaves the entire environment that we've been in the whole time, I, it pulled me out. And you could also see it coming once, once, once you even, once Morley even starts questioning it, you're like, oh, it's Earth because a, this is a PKD book, and I've read the penultimate truth where I know if I'm being lied to, it turns out it's just Earth, you know. <laughs> so yeah, right. I, I, it, I, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It pretty much was, it just didn't do anything for me. Well, I'll admit I didn't really see it coming. I just didn't like. I just assumed that because my brain was in this idea that we were so far away. Mm-hmm. That, that we just weren't going to see it and and so i just didn't i didn't think we were time out of joining it where we're just totally being lied to completely about where we're at and um but there's some really great writing in the reveal like i really like how he's describing um on page 162 in the mariner edition a great dead city under him the squib had come to arrest at a field up in the higher spires of the city's building web no movement, no life. No one lived in the city. He saw the view screen decay in absolute endless collapse, as if he thought, this is the city of the Forum Destroyer. I loved that. I, I did really right. like that stuff. No, there's definitely some great writing in this. But the, yeah. uh, but yeah. see, I think that the problem I had with that, with that scene specifically is that he was at the building. He was going to go inside the building. That was going to happen. And then all of a sudden, we're on this whole different adventure just so we can know that it's Earth. And all the other characters become background. They're not even in the story for that, however long he's doing that that ad- singular adventure. So it, it, it took me out in that sense. Like The only thing I didn't... Why are, why are we doing all this? Just to reveal that it's Earth? Yeah. I, the only thing I didn't like was that <laughs> like yes sirs like that that stuff just kind of bugged me because I was just like eh, it, <laughs> it bugs me more in the shadow over Innsmouth when Lovecraft tries to write in a dialect more like in every piece of dialogue yeah. made me want to smash my head into the in the wall <laughs> yeah that uh, for works. the robot voice I could take it or leave it it's not great but it's also not bad for me. So uh, anything else on, like, the layers of reality before we get into Because I have a few things of, like, parts that I thought were really good writing or funny parts. I mean, there's not a lot of layers of reality. It's just the the two layers, though. Mm, well, I do think there's, there's, there's what they thought they were on on Del Maco. There's – we got <laughs> – we thought we were at – we – we're at Earth, but no, really, we're, like, floating in the spaceship. So there's three. Three realities, right? Here. Um, almost like a three-act structure, but I don't... So you're saying... Okay, so you're saying that Del Maco and Earth are two separate realities? Well, I'm saying that the characters believe they're in that situation in those moments. All and right. Then, I can buy that. And then there's a third reality where, like, no, really, you're just dying on a spaceship, <laughs> and we're trying to trick you into thinking you're you're living this this life. Yeah. And and so there's so that's the third and final absolute reality. So it's like a Russian doll, like you've taken one doll out, now you got another. And I do like that. I do think it's cool that he's doing that, and and I do think that that 
works to a certain degree. I think it worked for me more than it did for you. The thing that I did not if like it wasn't, if it wasn't incoherent, I would have enjoyed it quite a bit. <laughs> well, I found it. I found it coherent enough. I mean, for me, but for me, the one thing that really hurt me with this book was I, and really took me out of the book was the Susie smart stuff was just so just dumb and misogynist and just like, <laughs> and, and like it just real thing, David. Real real people have that problem. Yeah, and I know that what he's it, doing. It, David, are you trying to say that you you hate the representation of nymphomania in this book? Yes, I thought all that stuff was was weird and childish and just out of place and just I don't know. Just didn't I want to ask it. you a question. Could you do some? Could you have a character like that that and and portray it in a way that you wouldn't find childish? Serious question. Yeah, sure, but what 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 my problem with it was the way it was written, it was like to me it came off as horny sci-fi 60s dude like writing completely unrealistically a, a character that it I didn't find her motivation to be realistic. It sounded like a what? guy making up a, 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 How do you, how is it not realistic? Because I don't, I didn't, it, it just didn't give agency to this woman that I just didn't think she made sense or was, was real. I just thought it was like a sex. Through her thing. power over men. That's how she judges herself. How, what part of that do you not think is, is agency? Well, it just didn't, I, I'm just telling you how it came off to me and how it just like, as I was reading it, I just kind of was, I was groaning because I just felt like this was like a guy writing kind of i don't know like nerdy wish fulfillment that's just what it came off to me that's just how it you know when i was reading i don't think i don't think it's nerdy wish fulfillment per se but i do think that every character in this book is afflicted with a type of neuroses that are all very one-dimensional representations of each individual's like affliction because they discuss okay, the idea that fair. oh maybe we're they yeah. they discuss the idea that maybe we're all escapees from this from the building and the building is supposed to function to them when they're discussing it to function as like a mental hospital and that they've escaped from it. Yes, David. Yeah. Yes, and and I will say in defense of this novel that um, they are all losers, not just <laughs> you know. So they are, and in there again too, he's kind of recycling uh, kind of people with mental illness are losers, David. <laughs> one-dimensional people with the mental illness are losers <laughs> well what saying, do you mean by well hold on hold on i want to i want to talk about it what what do you mean by losers well i mean these are all characters that are are, are okay losers might be the wrong word but they're all yeah, pretty much what what he uses in the book so yeah they're all damaged people who are there partially okay. because they're damaged and and so in that sense i i, I can go with the Susie smart thing in that sense and th there i can i can see it okay but again this is a, 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 where we complained a little bit about the private private cosmos being kind of recycled and certainly PAD doesn't do this as bad stephen king recycles a lot for example like christine is just he even recycles himself yeah. yeah well that's what i'm saying stephen king uh i mean Christine is the shining with a car instead of a hotel. It's the exact same structure. Right. And so he repeated, repeats himself many, many times. Right. And, and I, 
I think here, like we have the private cosmos thing and then the characters are also very similar to clans of the Alphane moon. So we're seeing kind of, but I think it works better here. It's more subtle than clans of the Alphane moon. But I think clans of the Alphane moon is <laughs> clans of the Alphane moon. Clans, clans of the Alphane moon, I think can kind of get away with caricature because it, sure. it in, I don't know if it's, it well, does it's, it. It's a, it's a, it, I don't know if it does it in a, in a, right. I don't know if, if clans does it in a, in a, uh, what, what's the word I'm trying to say? I don't think clans representation of mental illness is necessarily a good one, but I think that Dick was very actively trying to talk about mental illness in clans of the Alphane moon. And I don't think that I, I, I don't think he does it a bang up job with it, but I think here because none of these layered realities connect, it just seems like a lazy device. It, it, it never, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't matter because the their, their idea that they're all afflicted with an illness doesn't really match up with the, all the spiritual stuff, which also doesn't coincide with the whole reason that they're doing this. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and hold on, because... I forget who's saying it, but I have this highlighted. When they're discussing their reason for being there, he says, in for this, he thought, we left to kill a parson. There is a macabre irony about it. We all came here because we wanted to live more fully. We wanted to be useful. Everyone in the in this colony had a dream. Maybe that's what was wrong with us, he thought. We have been lodged too deeply in our respective dream worlds. We don't seem able to come out of them. That's why we can't function as a group. And some of us, such as Thug and Dunkelvelt, there are some of us who are functionally outright insane. Now, that does work when you realize that the whole reason they're doing this is so they can get rid of all their animosities towards each other on the ship that they're all stuck with. Mm-hmm. But what the hell does that have to do with the first 75% of the book? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, and I think it was Belsner that, or is that his name? Yeah, Belsner. Yeah, that's Belsner, that. yeah. But yeah, it's... That, it, it doesn't it doesn't gel it doesn't the elements don't go together it's like i a, actually i i will okay you've convinced me um on on Susie smart i see what he's trying to do by giving them all little bits of neuroses and things like that so so far be it for me to ever say that i cannot be convinced um <laughs> and initially i can see i mean like her the the description of her boobs it's so pkd in general like everyone's uh, all they talk about about her character is that she's attractive and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff that can sort of put that in your brain that it's going to be shallow but i think and he, i don't think it's done well at the other end yeah do you i don't know if i think it's great but i know what he's trying to do it's not it's not great but it, at least it's it makes sense there's, there's value in it right yeah, I, I mean, I see what he's trying to do with the story. I, I, I get that. And if you put it in the, the idea that, because if she's the most, I, I, I just, like, she seemed more, it, to me, as I was reading it, she seemed more flawed than the other characters. But what I'm realizing as we were talking about it, she's not any more flawed. They all have flaws and they are all, they all have issues. And that's why they're ending up floating endlessly in space like in this fake reality so um i do want to i do want to bring up uh did i i and i looked this up just because i i thought with the amount of characters the specific amount of characters first 
I thought of the apostles. And then because there's 12 plus plus one who would marry Magdalene kind of thing. But then I was also thinking there are also 12 main uh, Jungian archetypes. And I was I, I checked to see if they fit those roles. But they, they sort of the it sort of fits all those things. Like uh, that's what I I think he's talking about in in his forward, like bringing all these elements into the story, into the religion, and into the characters. But it doesn't it doesn't go hard enough in any one direction to be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a sort of like. It, it reminds me of the Wonder Boys uh, movie because he, he writes that giant, you know, novel that's thousands and thousands of pages long. And um, and uh, what's her face's character, Dawson's Creeks, uh, says, uh, you know, writing is making choices. And it seems like you didn't make any choices. And I feel like this is the same way. Everything is kept so vague that it's like no choices were made. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, this book probably again worked for me a little better than it did for, for you guys, but like, but there's some beautiful writing in it and there's some beautiful moments in it. Mm-hmm. The character deaths are really well-written. Yeah. Let's, let, let's talk about some of the moments that I thought were funny and really good. Um, on uh, page nine of the Mariner edition, that's when they talk about the kibbutz and the cheese. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Seth Morley said, uh, it's terrible here. Those quibbit, those uh, goat like suborganisms smell like the form destroyers last year's underwear. <laughs> I want very much to have seen the last of it. And then um, I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts of the book, or made, the parts that made me most laugh. When uh, to Neiman, he said, You can't come with us. Our instructions are to make flight by noser. Point A. A noser holds two people. In this case, my wife and me. Point B, you and your wife are two more people. Ergo, you will not fit. Ergo, you cannot come. Right. And um, I thought that was kind of hilarious. There's um, a lot of funny stuff in the kibbutz section. Yes. Um, second chapter. Yeah. And um, like, like we, like you, you were, you mentioned the marmalade. Like it's. He basically steals 10 jars of marmalade. Right. And then he says, uh, take a pot of sunny Spain into your kitchen or cooking cubicle, (laughs) Um, which is really hilarious. The spaceship's named the morbid chicken, which is great. A good name. Um, Also a good band name. The, uh, the nosers are hilarious. The one way ships that they're really funny to me. The, right. con- the concept of the form destroyer is just kind of funny um, in my mind. Uh, one of my favorite moments of the book, page 27, um, a, bro- a bug crawled up on his right shoe, paused there, and then extended a miniature television camera. The lens <laughs> of the camera swung, so it pointed directly at his face. Hi, he said to the bug. Rejecting its, its camera, the bug crawled off, evidently satisfied. I wonder who or what it's probing for, he wondered. Um, and then I like, he walks over to Betty Joe and he's like, were the monitoring bugs here when you arrived? And then she says, they began to show up after the buildings were erected. I think they're pretty harmless. 
So, like, I love that. Um, uh, yeah, ants with big movie cameras. That's what I see. Yeah. Um, page 57 uh, of the Mariner edition. It's dying, he realized, the universe. The thermal haze spread on and on until it became only a disturbance, nothing more. The sky glowed weakly with it and then flickered. Even the uniform thermal disbursement was expiring. How strange and goddamn awful, he thought. He got to his feet and moved a step towards the door. I just, I love that description of the universe kind of dying. Yeah. Uh, like that right there was one of my favorite moments of the book. Like, um, I fucking love that. And then yeah. I have one more, um, 108. Um, this illusionary transmission is in existence to fool those who know there is a building who expect to find it. And when they see, when they see this, they think they have, this is not for someone who does not know that there is a building somewhere out there. This worked really well in the war between interplan West and the warrior cults of Rigel 10. (laughs) Rigelian missiles zeroed in on illusionary industrial complexes over and over again. (laughs) I fucking love that. That was one of my favorite parts. I thought that was hilarious. I like the idea that, like, um, that they use these illusions as a tactic of war, but it only works if you think you see the building. If you don't know about the building, if the building doesn't, like, create this mystery for you, it doesn't work. <laughs> I like that idea. And yeah. it, it took me a little while to figure out that, you know, they say it's, it's a phantasm. It's a projection of some kind, a transmitter um, probably located within a square mile of us. I love when they're moving towards it and it keeps moving further away. It's fucking great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, just really, really, really cool elements on that. Um, so do you guys have any moments that you just – you really want to point to that I know Larry, you said you, there were a few moments that you really enjoyed like of the writing, like, yeah, the, I mean the deaths, obviously like, but uh, that one moment, um, I, you know, I don't I don't have it marked or anything, but, uh, when, when Roberta Rockingham gets taken away that, that section where the, you know, the jackbooted soldier or whatever he is guard is at her door, but, through some, you know, faults in her eyes or her glasses or there's some, he kind of glows and he seems so beatific with his smile and all that stuff. Just that, that, that little, that little bit right there, I thought was so well written and, and, uh, neat. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anthony, you guys aren't getting away. You, we're not, we're not going to get through this episode without me talking about this because, uh, I was like, I, I put the book down and went, huh. What? What? Uh, <clears throat> hippery hoppery. <laughs> hey, he said to himself, that's swell. That's where they have people hop onto animals for you know what. I always wanted to watch a horse and a woman make it together. I bet I can see that inside there. Yeah, I really want to see that for everyone to watch. They show everything really good in there and like it really is. You guys... You weren't getting away without me bringing that up. Yeah, that was really creepy. I was like, whoa, PKD just dropped some bestiality in this book. What just happened? (laughs) Yeah, that was was disturbing. Because all the characters have their vision, and then their ego takes over, and no one else can get in except for them. 
I thought that was great. It's the best scene in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when the when they're getting that their interface with the building for the first time. So let's talk uh, before we kind of wrap up our final thoughts. I have this very long Ken Stanley Robinson quote, Anthony. Uh, but which one? It's the only one that I have there. It's very long, but um, oh, the two paragraph one. Long. Yes. Okay, I, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me put my robe on. I get my my smoking pipe. <laughs> All right, strap in, boys and audience. The events chronicle the death of one after another of the characters at the hands of the Form Destroyer, one of the four gods that actively intervene in the fictional world, until Seth Morley himself dies two chapters from the end. Spoiler, Kim Stanley. We then learn that this train of awful events was merely a group hallucination. The 14 characters are trapped in a spaceship, Dick's Mind, and they engage in the hallucinations, the novels, to pass the time and release hostilities. The characters are doomed to repeat hallucinations endlessly, and because of their increasing tension at their hopeless situation, the hallucinated experiences are likely to become even more awful than the sickening one we have just experienced with them. Reading the spaceship as Dick's mind, in the group hallucinations, the sequence of novels that the cast of characters has appeared in over the years, we can see this book is a commentary on Dick's own work, and as such a metafiction, it marks one of the blackest and most bitter moments in Dick's career. Even the chapter titles reinforce this already palpable bitterness. They are lighthearted, but completely irrelevant to the text, creating a savage disjuncture between Dick and his characters in between the reader and the text. Now, before David starts talking, let me tell you, let me tell you, I wish that's what this book felt like. (laughs) I absolutely wish this was Dick saying, I'm moving on to another stage of my career, and I want to kind of throw all of this stuff I've talked about, all these archetypes and characters I've created, and blow them out the airlock with this one book. I yeah. wish that's that what this That would have been great if there absolutely was meta, meta commentary was in there. Oh, totally, which I, I felt absolutely like it was not to me. No, no. Go ahead, David. Okay. Well, obviously, Ken Stanley Robinson felt that way. I, I'm not necessarily... Sure. Yeah, and he has a... You know, he can read a book differently than us, and that's that's true. And I think, I think it's a great read. I just wish I felt the same way. <laughs> yeah. I think Ken Stanley Robinson is a little, is kind of over. I, like, I think he's being a little indulgent in what he, in the goals. And I don't think for a second that PKD was thinking, all right, I'm closing a chapter here. You know, I wish I don't think he was doing that. I think maybe in a sense, well, Frolics was written after, but it came out before, and um, we're really only going to have two books over the next couple of years. We're going to have um, We Can Build You and um, Flow My Tears for uh, – that's it, before 1978. And, yes, we are kind of entering into a different phase. Now, We Can Build You was written years before. So if you think that the next real serious novel that he finishes is Flow My Tears – and yes, we are getting into a different phase and a different era. And, and in a sense, this is closing it out. And I see what Ken Stanley Robinson is saying, that this is kind of thematically, you know, ending this kind of... A nail like, in the coffin. Yeah, for these anti-hero characters that are all just kind of ne'er-do-wells, you know. I mean, these guys don't aren't playing in jug bands or whatever, but, um, <laughs> you know, we've had those characters, right? And so I can see where PK, where um, Kim KSR, 
<laughs> I can see where KSR, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson kind of felt that way about this, but I, I think it's kind of, I think it's reading a little bit too much into it. Yeah, no, there's no way PKD was thinking in that in that sense. Yeah, I like, don't he think didn't even he barely he might have planned, subconsciously been doing it. Yeah, but, I, but he barely planned his books. So like to to have the idea and the and the what is a person perspicacity to sit down and write an entire novel with that in mind. There's no way he would have done that. He couldn't even oh, Larry, just blew me out the window with that word. Perspicacity? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All right. Well, such an elitist over here with his big vocabulary. <laughs> Hell, I probably didn't even use it right. Um, <laughs> okay, I do it all. I use words wrong all the time. Uh, so, I guess on that note, uh, maybe we should start... Uh, wrapping up with our thoughts. Um, I am going to give Maze Out of Death. Maze, Maze out, out of Death. Maze Out of Death. What book was that, dude? A Maze of Death. I'm sorry. I was thinking of... Um, I'm going to give... A time Maze out of, of Joint? A, a Time Out of Maze Out of Death Out of Joint. Um, <laughs> the streets, the three scanner darklies of the Alphane Moon? I'm going to give A Maze of Death um let me think about this i'm gonna give it um four bug cameras out of five um (laughs) and i may be overvaluing it but i just it i think it just worked for me better than it did you guys um i the 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 three levels of it i really spoke to me in in this one and i really liked um, I'm not even giving you the three levels. Yeah, I know you don't you don't see it, but and that's okay. I mean, I don't see some of the things Kim Stanley Robinson saw in this book, but but I think our I think everybody's experience with this kind of book is going to be a little different. Um, and and for yeah, me, because it's vague, <laughs> <laughs> right? And for me, I do think that those aspects work. I do think the reveal of them being in the spaceship at the end kind of works for me and and it works enough that the book overall was four stars for me because I did like all the, the funny stuff. And I did like, I did like the balance between the funny and the like super morose, like, whoa, I'm going to sit back and watch the universe end kind of thing. And, and so I did like that. So yeah, four out of five robotic bug eye, uh, bug TV camera eyes. All right. Uh, Larry. Oh, well, I'm I'm giving it a something. I think a two point five. What? This didn't get three out of you. I mean, two point five. Uh, uh, nosers. Yeah, that's a good good ranking system. <laughs> because uh, they're never coming there, back. There are some great great portions of this book. There's, I in fact I liked the chapter titles. I know they had nothing to do with anything, but they're like the non sequitur weird things. I, I I enjoyed that before I even started reading the book. Uh, so I forgot about those because I only looked at them the first time I opened the book. Yeah, I went back. Wait, what? 
often and and looked at the chapter titles. Did the I, contents. There's chapter titles. Oh, mm-hmm. guys, I'm gonna be totally honest with you. I just skipped right over it. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about those for a bit because they are hilarious. Um, wait, wait. Let me finish my review and then we'll talk about it. <laughs> my 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 Kindle copy doesn't. Oh wait, hold on. Table of contents. Go ahead, Larry. Okay. Uh, so, but it's a jumbled mess. The religion didn't make much sense. It didn't really have the power a, a the the power enough to write a foreword about it. I mean, if it maybe if the foreword hadn't been there and he hadn't put such a such an emphasis on this religion, it would have read better. Uh, and you I, were looking for that. Yeah, it was. I mean, he told me to look for it. <laughs> Well, I, you know what? I think I've kind of like calibrated my brain a little bit to the idea that whatever the book starts off being isn't necessarily isn't gonna what be. it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. So I think I, I, I'm able to calibrate that every time I read PKD now. Yeah. And uh, some of the twists and turns didn't work for me. I liked the mystery, but I didn't like the payoff. Uh, the, I think it being a, a, um, an all a dream ending was fine if there had been better uh, a better finale a better conclusion to the story that that took place on the on the uh, on the earth uh, it was unsat it was unsatisfying so i i can only give it an average average rating because it doesn't it doesn't uh, doesn't deserve more than that Anthony. So I'm going to give this three. I'm going to, I'm going to start three morbid chickens out of five to <laughs> yield game players of the solar lottery. <laughs> um, uh, no, th- three out of five morbid chickens for a maze of death. I like a lot. I like a lot of sections of it, but it doesn't melt together in the way that I want it to, especially when, you know, I, I understand that the, the, like their whole reasoning for doing the group VR is to, so they can almost kind of like safely act out their animosities toward each other. It, but it, that's it. I want to, I want to see more than that. Like how do they feel about each other beyond the initial urge to like cave each other's head in and shoot each other? You know, like are the, are the, how does how's this crew really supposed to work together, right? Like, are there are there crew members that are kind of in love with each other? Are there ones that are insecure about their their function on the ship? And you know, I'm sure, yeah, a few of them hate each other. So, like, how do they all kind of work out all of these issues outside of just oh, I gotta kill this other person. I'm mad because I want to, you know, I don't like you. Mm-hmm. I think that that would have elevated the characters so much more for me had Dick kind of explored more of that. And you can do that through their kind of nuanced, like, issues that he ascribes them, but it doesn't doesn't go beyond that because the first, like, half and more of the book is devoted to this back and forth about their fake religion. Yeah. I want Dick to pick a lane here because he's driving firmly down the middle of the road. Mm-hmm. and And then he just kind of, you know, knows the car at the last minute into one of them but the, the, the route he's taking totally isn't where he told me we were going and, and it doesn't work. Well, perhaps you would have perhaps, well, perhaps Larry would have 
enjoyed the book in the table of contents a little better. Um, have, Anthony, have you now looked at the table of contents at all? My Kindle edition doesn't have it. So, uh, hey, Mariner, no. tell your interns to upload the right file next really? time. It, it, you don't have the chapter titles at all? Nope. Here, I'll show oh, you. So the, so, the chapter, oh, I believe you. <laughs> the chapter titles, my mm. personal favorite is chapter 11, which is the rabbit which Ben Tallchief one develops the mange. mange yeah. <laughs> and then there's... No, yeah, I wish I had those. <laughs> chapter 13, in an unfamiliar train station, Betty Jo Byrne loses a precious piece of luggage. You yeah. remember that chapter? Uh, <laughs> or chapter 15, embittered Tony Dunkelwelt leaves school and returns to the town in which he was born. Yep. You remember that? That was great. Of course. Or uh, Glenn Belzer ignores the warning of his parents and embarks on a bold sea adventure. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah. Um, yep, I don't have any of those. I actually number chapter seven, the out of his many investments, Seth Morley realizes only a disappointing gain measured in pennies. <laughs> what Obviously. Fuck us this. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I, right. I, I'm so, I wish there was a something that PKD said about those, like how he came up with those chapter titles. Yeah. And they obviously don't have shit to do with anything else. So it's like, I, maybe they do. I mean, I don't know, but I can't see it, but right. um, I think he was just playing around and I thought it was funny, you know, sometimes, you know, and editors a lot of times will th throw that stuff out. I know one time I, I wrote some um, my story that um, was in um, Bizarro Starter Kit Purple. I tried to do the chapters backwards where they were counting down. And I worked really hard to like figure out exactly so the last chapter would count down and the last chapter would be zero. And mm -hmm. Rose was just like, no, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. <laughs> I was just like, damn it. I think Logan's Run did that, by the way. I think Logan's Run has yeah backwards. something like that. Yeah, right. so, um, okay, um, before we wrap things up, um, let's talk about um, Larry leaving the room. <laughs> um, or an adaptation. Um, well, I guess we'll start with Anthony while Larry is not here. Um, have you thought about Faze of Death as a movie? I thought about it very briefly as a film, and I think the way that I would do it is... I would revert, kind of take the ideas that I wanted more front and center that I just described and why I didn't like the book. So I don't, I don't want to totally repeat myself, but I, I, I love the idea about a, a crew aboard a ship circling a, what is it, a dead planet or a dead moon? I love, I, I love the, I love that idea about them going to this VR space to learn how to better live with each other and kind of act out their real feelings and their own neuroses together. And I would pretty much make that a bigger focus and develop the characters a hell of a lot more. And maybe have one character who is firmly rooted in this idea of spirituality and finding a god and wondering if there's a god manipulating them all until the end when you realize it's a simulation. But I feel like they don't... I, I feel like that needs to be... Let, the, the first half of the book needs to be less in the movie and the last half of the book needs to be more. So that that's kind of how I would do it. And I uh, as for the 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 general that just shows up to to take uh what's her name Rockingham away, 
played by Michael Shannon. Anyway, uh, I, I, I like I would kind of reverse the the book a little bit in, and I, I just got it. Just it really bugs me that this whole thing doesn't mesh well. But I think there's a way to structure it that that does, and I would totally do that for a two-hour film. Right. Um, all right. David so. grimaced at my adaptation, by the way, Larry. Oh, really? <laughs> I grimaced? No, I, I'm all for I, no, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you, dude. I'm totally fine using your script with uh, Panos uh, from the director. Cosmatos? Yeah. Yeah, the director of Mandy yeah. directing um, a totally tripped Same. out freaked out like insane looking maze of death with Anthony's script. So um, I'm hiring Anthony. So if you're listening, Panos, call us. Anthony does the script. Panos directs. I executive produce and cash the checks. Um, (laughs) And And I live destitute in a studio apartment in Golden Hills. (laughs) No. And I Um, make it on a pile of money. No, I with a yeah. big fat cigar. No, I'm actually fine with your your decisions story wise. Um, I might want to kind of try to figure out a, a, a trippy way to have the form destroyer be kind of like a part of the story or, or over it. I would like to see the building and that aspect of it um, and, and the planet. I mean, that's going to be a part of it because like even if they're on the ship, they're going to be doing with that alternate reality and um but yeah um panos doing the uh the directing uh maze of death would be the way i would go so yep that that's uh that's my adaptation of a maze of death um thank you hollywood um is to produce my script directed by panos and we're all happy so (laughs) larry what's your adaptation uh Let's see. I, well, I'm keeping a, the main, the bulk of the structure there, uh, but I'm definitely making it more about the people and the and the encampment and um, and their relationships actually mattering. Like I liked the idea that they're all in their own separate worlds and we have an outsider seeing them doing doing that and like just something off with everyone. Uh, and, and I would put in little hints that they're not where they seem to be, you know, just sort of, you know, those weird hints that you get in those kinds of movies where they're actually on a spaceship. So someone looks through a window and they see space or, you know, those little moments, because you, you really don't know what's happening, even, even though, you know, you think you know what's happening on the planet with the conspiracy and the the building and all that. But yeah, I would definitely give it more, more of a, of, of a straight plot. <laughs> like, like the, the murder mystery would have an actual solution, not just boom. Hey, I can get away with all kinds of weirdness because it didn't really happen. And, uh, I would probably have, uh, What's uh what's Benson what's Benson's first name? On the, t- on the TV show? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it was the, Benson. Uh, you know the two guys that made the um uh fuck. 
the San Diego guy. Oh, Moorhead. Moorhead. Yeah, Moorhead and Benson. Oh yeah, they would them do both the script and the and the the directing. Damn, you just fired Anthony. <laughs> and Panos. Uh, next up, we have um, a little ditty called "We Can Build You," which no way we're not doing dick like suggestions. Oh yeah 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 yeah. Sorry, we got dick like suggestions. <laughs> Give me time to look up the "We Can Build You" synopsis. <laughs> uh, so I'll start off. Uh, uh, well, no, Larry, you do your dick like suggestion first. This one seemed really interesting. Okay. Let me let me bring it up so I can remember what it's called. See, I forgot we put dick like suggestions at the end. <laughs> oh right, that doesn't work. All right. So the my dick like suggestion is a game called Silicon Dreams. And it is basically the Voigtkampf test, the video game. You you interview like literally you interview androids and figure out what's wrong with them. Now, I've only played the demo so far, and it's it's fun. It's interesting. It seems a little deep. Uh, I feel like there's going to be some kind of meta uh, stuff, or maybe there's going to be some kind of weird twist. But you actually play an android that's doing the that's doing the interviews. Your job is to uh, basically fix other androids you're basically uh, a, a an android shrink so you figure out whether they can leave or they get reprogrammed or they get destroyed so by asking them tons of questions it's pretty cool i think mm-hmm. that sounds great yeah you it's different it's a different kind of game it's not like it's not action-packed you sit in a room and do work <laughs> so yeah it's a desk job <laughs> yeah i don't really like to or feel like i have time for those things but i think it's i think it's cooler than like shoot 'em ups or whatever but mm-hmm. um that's cool anthony do you have a dick like suggestion this month yeah so for this month's dick like suggestion i'm actually going to recommend simulation nation graham tallman's podcast that david and i were just recently on it is a podcast about all things vr and kind of vr adjacent things like simulation theory etc uh they just recently did an episode on Lawnmower Man, Total Recall, and they've also, I say they, I think it's Graham and his guests, they've done episodes with uh, <clears throat> Michael Forrest, Dave Denzara, um, the guy who wrote The Simulation Hypothesis, Rizwan Verk, and yeah, it's an all-around really cool podcast, and like I said, he, David and I were just recently on it, but shout out to Graham, I had a blast doing that podcast, so Simulation Nation, if you like dickheads, and you're super into VR simulation theory. Um, before we've jumped on, I was listening to his episode on Johnny Mnemonic. It's mm. a, it's just a really solid podcast, and Graham's love for the stuff that he's talking about really, really shines through. So, Simulation Nation is my dick-like suggestion. Yeah, yeah. it was really cool being on 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 uh, somebody else's podcast. Um, <laughs> and uh, we are available for interviews if anyone wants to. Have us. Um, all right. And so that said cool. that with such little confidence, Larry. Well, two, two thirds of us are available for interviews. <laughs> well, Larry. Oh, now he's going to be mysterious. Hey, you did Bazong. So you which I when was that? Uh, I don't know when you were like 
like not responding to us on anything. Uh, <laughs> so it was like two years ago. So oh, sounds on brand. Yeah. So uh, anywho, um, yeah, no, I would I would love to do it, and I I uh, other podcasts because. Uh, it was definitely fun and simulation nation is, is really cool. And Graham is very neat. So cool guy had a fun time. So um, I'm going to be actually quick this time with my deck like suggestion. Um, and what? that is, I'm going to suggest a brand new novel, which is a little weird for me, but uh, good neighbors by Sarah Langan, who's a three time Bram Stoker award winning author of the keeper and she writes mostly traditional horror, but Good Neighbors is a weird thriller uh, tribute to the Twilight Zone, sort of cli-fi paranoia. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a social satire of the suburbs, uh, Good Neighbors, and it's definitely... Um, Except for wife, wives kind of thing? Or? Well, it's a, it's kind of like a cli-fi modern retelling of the monsters are due on, on Maple Street, the okay. uh, Twilight Zone episode. Um, and she's not hiding that. I mean, like the last um, chapter, I mean, the street is Maple Street in the, in the book. <laughs> and um, I recently interviewed her for postcards. So on um, uh, postcards from a dying world. So um, you can check out that interview as well. If you read it. But, yeah, uh, that book is on my to-read list. So. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. It's um, and uh, you know, Sarah talks a lot about in the interview that she was kind of in writer jail as far as like she was having trouble getting published for a couple years. And um, yeah, uh, and this is kind of a a cool, a different tact for her. And um, I really enjoyed the book. Had a fun time talking to her. So definitely check out Good Neighbors. Cool. So. Sarah Langan. And it is dick-like in the sense that it, uh, the kind of the paranoia and um, like commenting on the suburbs. So in a way it's kind of like fifties uh, PKD as far as like doing that kind of like slice of life, commenting on things that are around. And, um, and one thing too, just to, to promote our interview on uh, simulation nation, like one of the hot takes that Anthony and I, kind of agreed on and kind of took on in there as we talked about how uh, undervalued we think 50s PKD is um, compared to... A good chunk of the interview was all about that. Yeah, because um, it, I... And what we noticed the other day was that the Library of America editions, the three-volume editions of all of Dick's novels don't have a single novel from the 50s. They're oh, all... Really? They're all 60s. Really? 50s. Huh. 60s, 70s, and 80s, and there's not one from the 50s, and we kind of call BS on that, and um, so you can hear us talk about that. So on that note, um, next month we are heading to the year 1972. We're reading "We Can Build You." In this lyrical and moving novel, PKD intertwines the story of a toxic love affair with one about sentient robots and unflinchingly views and unflinchingly views it all through the prism of mental illness, which spares neither human nor robot. The end result is one of Dick's most quietly powerful works. When Louis Rosen's electric organ 
com- company builds a pitch-perfect robotic replica of Abraham Lincoln. The firm is pulled into the orbit of a shady businessman who is looking to use Lincoln for his own profit. Meanwhile, Rosen seeks Lincoln's advice as he woos a woman incapable of understanding human emotions, someone who may be even more robotic than Lincoln's replica. I'm finally going to read this robo-Lincoln book, you guys. Right? Finally. Yeah. Uh, and David Gill, in, in our interview that just came out the day we were recording this, or the day before we recorded this, um, kind of points out that in many ways, uh, We Can Build You is a Blade Runner prequel and takes place in the same universe. Interesting. I wish not you hadn't told me that, and now I'm going to be thinking about it. Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. There's a couple Easter eggs of different um, things um, that are in there, apparently. I haven't read it yet, so this, is, this will be my first time reading the uh, book that has a great original PKD title before it got changed as well that I'm not going to spoil. Enjoy. Oh, keep it paranoid. Goodbye. <laughs>